You're listening to Season 6 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, we analyze all 43 years of Gundam, episode by episode, and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 6.6. It belongs in a museum. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan. And if my hands were replaced with tools, I doubt I would get anything as cool as crab pincers or the Gundam hammer. Probably not even guitars or laser guns. I would probably just get a pair of microphones or maybe a bucket. (laughs) Pour oatmeal on stuff. Bathe the cheat. And if I got tired, I could sit on it. And I'm Nina, new to this run of SD Gundam, and I might like the SD version of Chris better than the original. I'm a sucker for anime women with that gruff, growly voice. It's the same voice actor. She always had that voice inside of her. They just wouldn't let her use it. It's too strong. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 610 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Derek58, Jacob F., Mikhail M., Andrew G., and Richard S. And a special thank you to listeners who found and shared Zako Gumpla and Zako Figures with us, Nigel S., Draconic Dak, and Bingus Bongus. If you enjoy MSB, help keep us independent and ad-free by subscribing on Patreon, making a one-time payment on Ko-fi, buying us research materials from our wishlist, or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Links to all of the different ways to support us are on our website, gundampodcast.com support. A quick update before Tom gets into the details of this episode. One of our parents who listens to the podcast messaged us with some information related to my bemusement about fax machines a couple weeks ago. With the completely sensible, if alien to us now, information that back before fax machines had their own dedicated phone lines, you had to call so that they would leave the line open so that they could get the fax, because you only had the one phone line for both phone calls and fax messages. This week we finish covering SD Gundam Mark III as we analyze Uchu no Shinpai Daisaksen, the space mystery operation. Originally included on Marutoku Special No. 3 and released in November 1989, Space Mystery Operation was re-released as the first short on SD Gundam Mark III in March 1990. The chief director was Amino Tetsuro, who also wrote the screenplay, and the unit director was Nakayama Noboru. Nakayama is an interesting choice for director. This is his only directing credit, and almost all of his other credits are for Shia, a job title derived from shiage meaning finish or finishing touches. This role handles the painting and final cleanup of animation cells, and it's unusual to see someone who normally does finish work crossing over to sit in the proverbial director's chair. Sato again returns as character designer and animation director, 
and the music credit is once again split between Totsuka Osamu and Kenji Kawai. Higashi Junichi served as art director. Previously, he was the art director for Zeta Gundam. And now, Nina's recap. In his quest to acquire the mysteries of the universe for his private collection, space thief Shar journeys through space in a giant, bright pink Psycho Gundam Mark II. But the hapless marauder has yet to catch a single thing, and he and his crew are thwarted at every turn, pursued by the spaceship Argama and its crew, the Space Rangers. Bright, Amaro, Cat Camille, Judo, and Chris. When Shar tries to catch a rare Kubele butterfly, the Argama's guns destroy his net. One after another, he deploys traps, a crane, a grabber arm, and one after another, the Argama blows them up before turning its sights on the Psycho Gundam itself. Bunny Girl Haman wants to know why they don't fight back, but it turns out that Char doesn't approve of violence, and the Psycho Gundam has no weapons. Haman urges that they run away, but instead, Char orders the ship to execute Plan T. Looking away from his television, between bites of potato chip, Degwin replies, Aye aye, sir, and transmits the order to Sarah, who sits up in her tanning bed and hits a few buttons on the control panel next to her, causing a massive net to shoot out behind the Psycho Gundam and envelop the Argama. Bright orders the Gundam squad to launch, but no sooner are they out of the hangar than they are all stuck fast to the netting. Next to launch is Judo, outfitted with claw-like pincers over his hands. He starts snipping at the ropes of the net. Char gives another order, which passes through Degwin and to Minerva, who connects two contact points at the ends of cables, electrifying the net and everything and everyone touching it. Cat Camille is too busy cleaning his ears to be any help, so Chris is next, riding the core booster and brandishing her signature baseball bat. With big swings, she knocks each member of the Gundam squad free from the net and towards the Psycho Gundam. Meanwhile, the Argama reverses course. At the helm, Amuro switches to the rear-facing treadmill. His running powers the ship, and as soon as they realize they're being pulled backwards, the Psycho Gundam picks up speed too. Its galley crew of Zaku rowing so fast that their oars blur. Done cleaning his ears, Cat Camille joins the attack on the Psycho Gundam, crouched on a wave rider, hackles raised, hissing and waving a large fish. A couple of Mark IIs replace Judo's claws with a hammer and a Gundam hammer, and the Argamas fighters descend on the Psycho Gundam, striking the outside with a buka and a buckle and a pow and a blam. The head of the Psycho Gundam springs up away from the body, and out come a team of human and mobile suit defenders. Rosamia snags Cat Camille with a fishing line, jerking him backwards and into a net. Chris chases two enemy mobile suits, but stops short when the barrier of a railroad-style crossing drops down in front of her. The taunting of the two is cut short when a speeding colony hits them passing through the crossing. Other enemy mobile suits are distracted by the appearance of a rare golden haro, but their attempts to catch it with boomerang, net, and lasso only injure themselves. Still, the Zissa manages to catch the Gundam squad, and Char tries to escape through a patch of rainbow-colored warp space. 
The two ships, still attached by the net around the Argama, pull in opposite directions and make no progress either way. Until another mystery of the universe appears. A running poodoo! The naked girl runs through the walls of one ship, then the other, singing poodoo 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 poodoo. And when Char tries to catch her in a net, she transforms into a mermaid. Swimming through space, she smiles a fanged smile and cuts through the net in two bites. Each side gets away. The Argama and its remaining crew pretty unconcerned about their captured comrades, and the Psycho Gundam, deep in warp space, swallowed up by a monstrous Zacrello whale. I did it! I captured one of the mysteries of the universe, Char declares proudly. The others fall over in surprise and dismay, with a resounding BOPIN! I know I say this periodically, but this time I really, really think it's true. I don't have a lot to say about this episode. Famous last words. Just let the laughter out, Tom. Let it, <laughs> let it out. Famous last words. We shall see what all we have to say about this episode. I think viewed from like a mile up, looking at all of the SDs so far, it is easy to see them getting more comfortable with the format, getting more ambitious with what they're trying to do. I think this is a, uh, in many ways, a significant improvement on what we've seen before. On a technical level, it's one of the best made of the SDs. And a lot of the humor in it works, at least for me. I mean, I mean, this is going to be a very personal thing. On the other hand, uh, some of the problems we've had with SD in the past are back after taking a vacation during those Sengoku Jidai era shorts. As so often happens, the minute we start talking, I have all of these realizations. And you said you didn't have anything to say. But I'm starting to wonder if it is in fact a real disservice to the SD Gundam shorts that they are shown separately and not alongside other things. Mm. There was a bit of a vogue. I don't even know that it rose to that level, but I remember a great many cartoons when I was growing up that were really like compilations of cartoons or had one main cartoon that took up the bulk of their, you know, 25 minute block. But a couple minutes of that would be devoted to these little like side cartoons that are mm -hmm. tangentially related, but are not part of the main story. Mm -hmm. And that feels like the niche for SD Gundam. And so watching them alone, as opposed to as this little like silly palette cleanser attached to some other show, feels as though maybe it makes them less enjoyable. Mm -hmm. I can see that. And of course, some of them were intended to be watched alongside movies. Right. Very serious movies like Pat Labor the movie and Char's Counterattack are both pretty like grave and serious mm -hmm. in their tone. But a lot of the SD shorts were released on their own. That is how they would have been consumed. But I agree with you. It's like going out to dinner and, you know, eating an appetizer. Or that little bit of dessert at the end of the meal. Or, And I know that for many Gundam fans, even that wouldn't make SD palatable. So much of Gundam is so serious and is about dealing with serious topics and themes. It's more drama than it is comedy the bulk of the time, although there are occasional comedic beats. And so the 
total 180, the out-and-out silliness and lack of story to the SDs is never going to be <laughs> appealing <laughs> to people who you know like Gundam for that. Maybe part of the benefit of what we're doing is, since I know I have to watch these anyway for the podcast, I have reconciled myself to making the best of it and finding things to like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also just have extremely varied tastes. I like silly comedy. I also like deep, serious drama. I mean, it is a recognized phenomenon that reviewers, critics, and other people who like engage with media as their job, the way we do now, have a disproportionate fondness for novelty, for anything that mixes things up and presents a different tone, something different to engage with, which is, this is definitely different. Uh, I mentioned, I think last week when we were talking about the micro episodes, those little three minute long, super limited animation bits, that if you don't expect too much from them, you might enjoy them. And I think that goes for a lot of the SDs. like. If you come in expecting a masterpiece, you're going to be disappointed. Beyond that, even, so much of the time when people say that they didn't like something, a lot of it is that their expectations were not met or their expectations were violated even. Gundam at this point has become a franchise about which we have expectations. And if you are carrying that in you, and then you watch these SD shorts, it's going to be a shock to the system, <laughs> and quite possibly a deeply disappointing one. Gundam as a franchise, in fact, labors under so many expectations, more, I think, than most franchises do. Partly that's that it's been going on for 40 years and they've never stopped making it. But part of that is there is a, a kind of calcification of certain Gundam tropes, like if I'm watching the first episode of a new Gundam series and a smart-mouthed teenager doesn't steal a mobile suit at some point, I'm going to be a little bit surprised. Possibly even disappointed. Miffed. Miffed would be a good name for a mobile suit. Anyway, we should probably talk about this uh, episode in specific. Yes. Now, you were talking a moment ago about how these episodes might be better received if they were attached to something else. The counterpoint to that, I think, is that sometimes there can be some bit of content that doesn't last very long, but that still kind of poisons everything that's attached to it. And in my experience, that has happened with SD a couple of times, and it happens this week. Because while this um, space mystery operation short is, for the most part, pretty good, for the most part, the humor works, a lot of it is very fun, they still go back to the um, deeply uncomfortable naked Puru well. Uh, and I, it the well is poisoned. And as a result, a lot of other stuff attached to it, like all of the sort of lewd body comedy in this short, ends up, to me, feeling just icky when it wouldn't otherwise. I didn't quite have that reaction to Puru in this short, and I don't know if that's because I am becoming numb <laughs> to it, or if, to me, this short didn't feel as though it was condoning that sort of prurient interest in Puru. It didn't feel as if it was going, oh, you silly pedophiles, and your interest in Puru. I guess I can't separate it from the Rolling Colony affair knowing that it was all the same people, you know? 
or at least most of the same people at the top. And that's totally fair. And I did want to address, there is a bit of a pun with Pudu. She can run through walls, she's running naked through these ships and through outer space, and she appears, and when Char tries to catch her with a net, she transforms into a mermaid, which I don't understand what the mermaid thing is about. But he says, hentai shita. Most English-speaking anime fans know hentai as a word for perverse, perverted, pervert. It's used to refer to pornographic content. But hentai can also mean to transform. Uh, and so they're punning on that interest in Puru and also that she transformed. And it's that reference to that interest in Puru that like links it back to Rolling Colony Affair, where they were very explicit about calling people who are interested in Puru pedophiles. You know, that's directly in the text. And this is part of why I find the um, Puru denialism in the larger Gundam fandom so hard to swallow. Like, this is the argument that you'll see sometimes, that the name LP Puru doesn't actually come from the magazine L People. It's just a coincidence, and there's no connection between Puru and the quote, lolicon boom of the era. And it's like, the people making Gundam clearly knew. Are aware of the connection. They know what the deal is. It's right here in SD. It's on the page. I suppose where Rolling Colony Affair felt not just permissive, but sort of indulgent of this whole thing, this short feels like it's pointing it out. It's pointing out like, uh, we are aware of this thing but not in the same, and we're going to use it to market this short and we're fine with it kind of way. I guess part of that is the the context, the setting. Rolling Colony Affair was like a cute girl's cabaret. With the a bunch point of was to leer. men and mobile suits ogling all of these ghost women. Here, a lot of my response to this episode was based on that context, was based on what we had seen before and what I was bringing into it viewed on its own and separated from that, I do think this has a more innocent and humorous feeling to it. Similarly, compared even to other ones that we liked, like the uh, school counterattack one, everyone's in alternate costumes. Most of the women characters are in some form of bikini or <laughs> other sexy outfit. We've got a bunny girl, Haman, a hula girl, Rosamia, Sarah and Quest in bikinis, etc. But there's no ogling. Mm -hmm. Even Degwin watching Kiara on TV, he's not drooling over her. I'm almost not even sure if he's paying attention <laughs> to the television. It's just on while he's snacking and half working. And all of this is kind of why I felt like it was such a shame to reintroduce the Puru element. Mm. Because... I find the the joke of like, here are these potato-bodied SD characters <laughs> wearing like, quote, sexy outfits, like potato-bodied Haman in bunny girl costume, or just like, you know, featureless tube body Rosamia in like a grass skirt. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and Kiara as a dominatrix cracking her whip and saying, you will call me queen. <laughs> See, this is a good bit. Um, but then it gets poisoned because of the context. Char is wearing a black and red outfit that 
My first thought was that it was the Johnny Destiny Space Ninja version of his costume. If you're not familiar with Johnny Destiny Space Ninja, it's one of the many titles of a Korean animated movie from the late 70s or early 80s that um, used some of the Gundam character designs. As it has its own unique storyline, um, but it did borrow some ideas <laughs> about how to design your characters. Uh, and it's got basically Amuro, but wearing Char's outfit. And the color scheme is black and red, kind of like this. The other thing that some people suggested is that it might be a Harlock reference, space pirate Harlock. And I think there's probably something there. I'm not super familiar with Harlock. We watched one of the movies. The skull on the chest of the costume definitely fits. Also, there's that whole bit where he's like, I loathe violence, which I assume is a reference to him saying something like that in Char's Counterattack. And it was exactly as believable in that context as it was in this one. But he also has this whole thing about like, my pride and whatnot. And that that feels like Harlock. That feels like the stoic. Very honor obsessed. Oh, in Char's retinue, <laughs> which is all women, almost all women. All women and Dagwin, which that, that that might also be a Harlock thing. And the way that they draw Dagwin in SD is quite similar, actually, to the short guy from oh, Harlock. Tochiro. Yeah, with the small mm -hmm. round glasses. and. I do wonder why Dagwin shows up so much in SD. He is not a significant enough character in Gundam to justify this. I guess he's a bit like the Zacrello. It must have just been fun to draw him or they enjoyed the character they created for him. Silly old man kind mm -hmm. of vibe. But in Char's retinue, there is a blonde woman with her hair up that at first I thought was probably Lady Haman, but she is also wearing glasses, which made me think of Namikar. I don't know who she's supposed to be. I assume she's supposed to be Haman. But with glasses. Everybody's in an alternate costume. And at some point, she's wearing a massive sun hat, just because. Yes. Though my initial read on that, because she's also got the net. This is when they deploy all the, the girls in mobile suits. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was like a beekeeper outfit. Oh. <laughs> uh, Probably more of a, I'm spending time outdoors, so I better protect myself from the sun kind mm -hmm. of bug catching mm -hmm. ensemble. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about the other side, I would also like to point out that Sarah is lounging in a Sunrise brand tanning bed. That's also a good bit. And is the Denki nurse, the nurse who keeps electrifying the net and frying the crew of the Argama, is that Rekawa? I think that's Minova. It's Okay, that was my other guess. <laughs> like, short red hair. <laughs> that's That's <laughs> one of the best bits in the episode, by the way. Her just being like, Denki, and electrocuting them at humorously timed moments. The costumes on the other side also feel iconic, but not in a way that I could tie to any specific property. Mm -hmm. Amuro and Judo seem to be wearing kind of generic space suits, the kind that have the sort of like puffy thing at the shoulder. <laughs> and Yeah, it's like I see it and I'm like, I'm positive that this is something, but I couldn't pin them down. Judo, because of the way he keeps like switching attachments for his hands. That was one of my favorite bits. In I, the whole assume, episode. I assume Judo is meant to be like a Mega Man parody. Mm. And the Gundam hammer makes a reappearance alongside a real hammer. I prefer when he becomes crab. Kani, Kani. They give him little snippy hands. The hands are great. 
Chris's version of the outfit is basically like the spacesuit the men are wearing, but like a like a one-piece bathing suit. Mm-hmm. No legs, no arms. I think she might be a Barbarella reference. That would make sense. As I joked in the intro, I think this version of Chris is my favorite, actually. She's the only one with any gumption. The extremely gruff voice, <laughs> the aggression, the baseball bat. I mean, similar to her appearance in um, the Storm Calling School Festival. Absolutely. But this sort of SD persona that they've created for her, where clearly somebody told them she's a mobile suit test pilot and she beats up a guy who she thinks is breaking into her neighbor's house by hitting him with a baseball bat. And they were like, okay, we have an image of what kind of young woman would do that. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think both of the shorts that she has appeared in so far were overseen by Amino, but at this point, Takamatsu Shinji is working on the SD shorts, and he also worked on 0080. So there's now a direct connection between the two projects. I would like to point out that Amuro running on a treadmill is apparently as powerful as an entire galley crew of Zaku powering the motion of the Psycho Gundam Mark II. Well, the thing is, rowing is hard. (laughs) So is running. The Argama must just have a much more efficient engine. Um, Actually, this is a good transition opportunity to the whole like concept of space that they have created here where space obeys whatever laws of physics happen to be most convenient for whatever joke we're trying to make at any given time. You can run through space. You can clearly breathe in space. There are tiny planets with huge things on them. There's a tori, the Japanese temple gate style construction. There's a giant vending machine that vends fuel (laughs) for ships. Uh, There is a water planet with a spigot in it. Yeah, I mean, this is an aesthetic that goes back at least to The Little Prince by Saint-Exupéry, but I associate it most closely, more modernly, with Dragon Ball, with Akira Toriyama's work. Yeah. And of course, we know that there's a connection between the origins of SD Gundam and Akira Toriyama's Dr. Slump, so it's not a surprise to see that aesthetic mirrored here. They also use quite a bit of romaji, I noticed like on the bridge of Shara's ship where it says Psycho Gundam. And every time he says power up and uh, later on in the episode when the two ships are fighting each other and they do a lot of comic book style sound effect text, which is about 50-50 in Katakana and in Romaji, which is to say the Latin alphabet. Tom brought up some time ago how many of the jokes in SD get better over time because they become funny through repetition. That's absolutely still true for Bopin, <laughs> which is the reaction to any time somebody does something totally ridiculous and you you just can't even, then you Bopin and fall over, <laughs> apparently. Uh, Cat Camille, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. At one point, he is brandishing a fish as a weapon as he flies at the enemy, and it's so funny. And snarling, and yeah, he's great. I just love him. (laughs) And a bunch of the mobile suits that make appearances are not mobile suits that were terribly important or present in their original series, but they're mobile suits that are fan favorites or kind of silly, 
the Zuccarello being the main one mm-hmm. and the Zuccarello whale. I mean, the Agu guy makes another appearance, and that's one that has had more appearances in SD than it ever had in original Gundam. Is that the one I think of as the Ribbons mobile suit? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> ribbons. Which appeared for a brief period in the Tiger Bomb episodes of Double Zeta. And as far as original Gundam animation, that's it. Whereas in SD, it's had like four or five appearances. The Zissa, the Ashimar, both of those make appearances again and were not all that big a deal in their original <laughs> series. I really like the reimagining of the Kubelay as a butterfly, the swallowtail Kubelay. The Golden Haro. Which we have seen before. Golden Haro was also in Rolling Colony Affair. Presumably, it has some sort of backstory in the comics, but I don't know it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, listeners, I've failed you. Now, of course, I'm feeling compelled to get on the internet and look for an actual Golden Haro, because I would put money on somebody having done a gold-leafed Haro. (laughs) I feel like Bondi might have done an official one for one of the New Year's Haro's. They've done a whole bunch of like special special haros. I personally do not know how to apply gold leaf, but maybe I will have to make a golden haro at some point. We've had a lot of generally positive things to say about this short's uh, content and its production values. And one of the things that really stood out to me, probably what I think is the best executed part of the short is the music. The music is very forward. It's very noticeable in a way that the music for a lot of the SDs hasn't been. And the way they use different music for the different sides and switch between them rapidly, the way the music is constantly changing tempo and register and It's very dynamic. Yes. It speeds up as the activity of the episode speeds up, contributing to an overall um, frenetic and very funny experience. The music ends up being indispensable to my enjoyment of this short. Speaking of the two sides in this conflict, we again have an extremely hapless villain who has a seemingly quite evil plan, which is that he wants to find all of the mysteries of the universe and catch them for his own private collection. However, he is yet to actually succeed at capturing anything. Uh, haha, space thief Shar. Mm-hmm. And then the space rangers, who are ostensibly trying to protect the mysteries of the universe. Space rangers being such a generic name, I feel positive I've heard it before. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I looked, when I was trying to identify the various costumes, I did some poking around on the subject of space rangers in both English and Japanese. And yes, there are so, so many of them. Of course, the Space Rangers are also kind of terrible. Also, the one woman on their team is still the one doing the laundry. Of course. Which I think is then hanging up in the bridge. Yes. (laughs) The way the different spaceships are just like houses, office buildings, just like very mundane spaces transposed into space is both a funny SD gag, but also that's something that Gundam did. We remember back in First Gundam or Zeta or even Double Zeta, they spent some time showing us the mundane reality of life on these spaceships. Here it's just more mundane and less real. It feels weird that I have to bring this up, but um, at this point, with 
three incidents that I noticed. Um, I have to say, of all the things that I was expecting to find in SD Gundam, a preoccupation with BDSM was not one of them. But in the Rolling Colony Affair, we had that um, extended torture sequence between the Masala and the Double Zeta. And, and the Double Zeta was enjoying being tortured. Oh, yeah. Explicitly. Mm-hmm. And the you know specific nature of the torture and the torture <laughs> devices involved. Um, anyway, then in SD Gundam's Counterattack, the ending song to the Storm Calling Schools Festival has a explicit reference to attending a sadist club. And now we get Kiara's dominatrix bit. Who is this for? <laughs> People who are into BDSM, I guess. I guess. BDSM and Looney Tunes. And now, Nina's research on composer Kenji Kawai. As Tom mentioned in the introduction, the music credit for SD Gundam Mark III is shared by Totsuka Osamu and Kenji Kawai. And if that second name sounds especially familiar, there's a good reason for it. Born in 1957 in Shinagawa City, one of the wards of Tokyo, Japan, Kawai is a musician, composer, and arranger who has worked on dozens of anime and live-action projects. Perhaps most famous for his soundtrack for the Ghost in the Shell movie, a short list of Kawai's credits, narrowed down to things I've heard of, includes Masoni Koku, the Ranma Half TV show and OAV, Gantz, the 1998 and 99 Ring and Ring 2 films, Fate Stay Night, Eden of the East, Mob Psycho 100, live-action Death Note projects, Kamen Rider Build, the 2008 and 2010 Ip Man and Ip Man 2 movies, Resident Evil Vendetta, half a dozen Pat Labor projects, and of course, Gundam. More recently, he did music for Double Zero and Rebuild, but his very first Gundam credit is for All That Gundam, the 10th anniversary short. After that, he worked on SD Gundam Mark II and continued to work on SD Gundam for some time. Although he was interested in music from a young age, thanks to the influence of his music-loving father, when asked how and why he became a composer, Kawai describes it as mysterious and something even he doesn't entirely understand. When he was in elementary and junior high school, French and American pop music were very popular, and of course, the Beatles. His favorites were Raymond Lefebvre, Francis Lai, and Burt Bacharach and he listened to a lot of movie scores. In high school, he bought an electric guitar and began playing as a hobby, eventually forming a band. His Wikipedia page credits, blames, the band for the time he spent as a ronin, a term that originally referred to a masterless samurai, but now is used for high school graduates who fail their university entrance exams and have to wait a year for another shot at them. Around this time, he also listened to a lot of Moriyama Ryoko, Deep Purple, and Santana. Kawai went on to study at Tokai University and initially intended to become a nuclear engineer. But the academics were very difficult, and he wasn't doing well in his classes. He realized he would have to completely devote himself to it if he wanted to continue, and decided it wasn't for him. He dropped out 
not entirely sure what his new plan was, and after realizing that he was spending most of his newfound free time playing guitar and writing music, he decided to attend music school and enrolled at Shobi Music Academy. But he wasn't much of a student there either, describing himself as easily distracted by all the cute girls and spending all of his time playing around, having fun. He dropped out of Shobi too, and formed a fusion rock band with some school friends. Their band went on to win a Grand Prix contest and some prize money, plus the contest had brought them to the attention of a record label, and they were approached about a contract. But the various band members had very different ideas about the kind of music they wanted to make, Kawai included, and the band broke up instead. Describing all this, Kawai admits to feeling a bit embarrassed, that he sees himself as always having run for the easier path. After the band broke up, he started composing music for theater and for TV commercials from his home studio. His break in anime came while composing for a play by radio and dubbing voice actor Mitsuya Yuji, who, I've got to say, has a remarkable list of credits himself, and even in those early days had already voiced characters on Combattler, Saint Seiya, Megazone 2-3, and The Legend of the Galactic Heroes, and had done a ton of Japanese dubbing for non-Japanese movies, including being the voice of Marty McFly in the dubs of all of the Back to the Future movies. Anyway, during this project, he met and collaborated with musical director Asari Naoko, who went on to recommend him for jobs composing anime soundtracks. Kawai still lives in the Kita-Shinagawa area of Tokyo, where he was born and raised, and has his studio there. In an interview with French TV program Tokotoko, he shows the crew around his neighborhood and studio. I'll link to the video in the show notes, of course. He describes how Shinagawa Shrine is very popular with locals, and that as a kid he used to play there, building little forts on the edges of the grounds, catching bugs. And besides being a place to play or have a bit of quiet, the shrine inspired some of his early interest in music. Shinagawa Shrine has an annual festival each June, which is very lively and has all the typical food and games of these kinds of festivals, but also has a mikoshi. Mikoshi are portable shrines, carried by a team of locals to transport the main shrine's kami, or deity, to a new or temporary location. Though they range in size, some of them are very large and heavy, and not only are they being carried, but sometimes they're being shaken or jostled to amuse the kami inside. Movements are usually coordinated with a whistle or by one lead person shouting. But the one at Shinagawa Shrine is guided by a flute and a drum, which Kawai always found extremely cool and later used that drumming as the inspiration for the Ghost in the Shell music. In the segment, he also describes some of the ethos behind his compositions, that he prefers music that he describes as warm, and that he wants his own music to be scary, not in the horror sense, but in the sense of bringing up deep and often frightening human feelings, like love and regret. According to his Wikipedia page, Kawai draws much of his inspiration from the visuals of the work he's composing for, and has stated that he's no good at composing without the inspiration, conditions, and limitations of a visual work. If he can't reference completed animation, he goes off of storyboards. One of his strengths is working fairly intuitively. For example, for the movie Kuroyuri Danchi, 
called The Complex in English, supposedly each song only took him four or five minutes to write. It seems fitting, because we are covering SD Gundam, to end with some entertaining fluff. Kawai looks like a rocker, his long, bleached blonde hair seemingly a signature look that he has had for some time. His blood is type A. He enjoys exploring the little alleys and side streets of his home neighborhood, and his hobbies include mahjong, model trains, and visiting hot springs. For favorite foods, he lists gyudon, a bowl of seasoned sautéed beef and onions over rice, sushi, and hot peppers. And for favorite liquors, the list is somewhat longer. Beer, wine, sake, vodka, shochu, calvados, and a joking everything at the end. The website even has pictures of his pet cats, Chico, Bio, and Mie, although Mie seems to have died in 2003. And for the AV heads among you, he includes a list with photographs of all of the equipment from his studio. I absolutely recommend checking out both his website and the Toko Toko segment. The video is less than 15 minutes long and really gives you a sense of Kawaii as a person. Plus, he talks through a bit of his process coming up with the Ghost in the Shell soundtrack and his happiness at the work's positive reception overseas. I'm excited that we'll get to hear more of his work on future Gundam series. Next time on episode 6.7, you must gather your party before venturing forth. We research and discuss SD Gundam Gaiden, episode 1, and dramatically convenient amnesia. Zaku ver goblin mode. What kind of heartless adventurer would reject an adorable sidekick? Kani kani. Drowning in slimes. Naito Shars, heel face, heel face, face, heel turn. Knight, priest, warrior, elf. Lala ponders her orb. Blame this on the misfortune of dropping your guard. Post credits teaser. And. This served no purpose, but nevertheless. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is A Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Olivia by Hyson. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. I don't know, Nina, is it ever going to be safe to share wrong Gundam opinions with the world again? Wrong opinions like... SD Gundam and I have had our differences over the years, but they also use my preferred spelling of Psycho Gundam, so we're good now. All is forgiven. If people don't share wrong Gundam opinions like that, they'll just keep building up inside. Until something terrible happens. Something terrible like spelling Psycho Gundam the wrong way.
And when he's washing his ears in a cat-like fashion. I assume that's uh, some sort of superstition mm-hmm. or old wives' tale that if cats are cleaning the backs of their ears, it means it will rain tomorrow. Are you trying to get a bunch of our listeners to message you with techniques for applying gold leaf to Gunpla? Um, especially in the end when Bright is giving his speech of like, yes, we did lose some of our friends, more than half the crew, but it's worth it for our nebulously defined mission of protecting the mysteries of the universe. came at the order of them in a somewhat roundabout fashion this is the end of sd gundam mark three yeah what do we do next well in the future there is sd gundam mark four and sd gundam mark five but there's also sd gundam gaiden and sd gundam gaiden isn't even really shorts those are full-length anime episodes four of them Look forward to that. (laughs) I did that on purpose. Sure you did. To be terrible. I think you just make horrible noises. Mm, Also true. Not a wave rider. No, what it is? is the um. Hang on. It was introduced in the movie. It's the core booster. Every time I think it's gone, I hear it again. Well, that's actually a good question. I've been saying it Kenji Kalai because on his own personal website, he does it Kenji Kalai. Um, I don't know about the Japanese one. But my impression from that is that he would prefer, in English, Mm -hmm. to be Kenji Kawai. Mm